Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Town City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show six bloody hundred. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, show six hundred, man. What an achievement. Bloody hell, man. Been going since, I think, was it May 2006? And we're on now, sure. Oh, little pat on the back for the old fella and everyone involved. Thank you so much. So we will jump straight in to... That's just bizarre. 600 episodes. And not forgetting, mind you, there's probably another 102 of the Starship Sova originals as well. So... We've got that as well, <laughs> baggage as well. So anyway, let's jump into the main fiction, and it is Once There Was a Way by Chris Barnum, originally published in Flickr. So, little heads up about Chris. Chris Barnum spent a long time working for the British government, but now he just makes stuff up for himself. Chris has a novel out with US publisher Phils Wirtz Publishing. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's called 51 and features a time-travelling cop marooned in 1940s London, forced to choose between saving the future or the woman he loves. Interzone magazine described it as better plotted than Connie Willis. This story is narrated by Andrew Lehman. Andrew Lehman is a producer, designer, actor, writer and director. Not necessarily in that order. He has appeared on professional stages in Chicago and Los Angeles and is a member of the Theatre Banshees in Burbank, California. He has designed graphics and props for numerous films and TV shows. With his friend and collaborator of many years, Sean Branny, Andrew has been running the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society since 1984, and he has me going on about 2006. Man, Andrew, Andrew, you you put some effort in there, lad. And has developed numerous film, audio and gaming projects, including the award-winning motion pictures, The Call of Cthulhu and The Whisperer in the Darkness. He is the author of Lovecraftian Times and is the designer of the highly authentic prop documents for Call of Cthulhu Gamers. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Once there was a way by Chris Barnum. I'd known Ellie a month. We were at a party near the coast. It was after midnight when we kissed in the dark under the trees at the end of the garden. Ellie said, There's something I want to show you. Will I like it? I assumed we were talking about sex, which was fine with me. I've never shown anyone else. I think you're ready. She took my hand and led me through a gate into a cliff-top meadow overlooking the Atlantic. A full moon stood sentinel over the sea, laying a shimmering trail across the water. Do you want me to show you something amazing? Right here. I admit I was still thinking about sex. It only works at full moon. She stepped closer and kissed me again. Close your eyes and relax. Her hands were on my shoulders. She eased me backward a step at a time. Tell me what you feel under your feet, she whispered. Each step. Grass, of course. Grass again. Wait. A change in the texture of the ground, some kind of artificial surface. Open your eyes. I had one foot on a layer of mist, which had not been there a few seconds before. It glowed in the moonlight, making a ghostly path that snaked away from us, rippling along the cliff top. I thought at first it was some trick of the moonlight and a trace of sea mist abetted by the wine we had drunk. But however impossible it seemed, there was no denying that I stood on a thin strip of light a couple of inches above the grass. What is it? It's called the way. But what is it? You can find out by trying it, Ellie said. You're always keen to travel, but you've got to do exactly as I say. Don't go far, just a few minutes, and then come back. Count the number of steps you take and make them even. Take the exact same number on your way back. And take this. She reached up and unclasped the silver necklace she wore. When you come back, give it to me before you do anything else. Why? The chain had a tiny silver dolphin on it. I'll explain later. Now go, but hurry back. Is this two hundred trips, or maybe more? I've lost count. This time her house isn't even there. Instead, a brutalist 1970s apartment block squats on a patch of grass. Two teenage boys sit on the roof of a wrecked car. They watch me as I approach. I keep walking. Once out of sight, I take the turning that should lead to the pub, but that isn't there either. There's a row of narrow houses, some with boarded windows. No house, no pub, no way of knowing if Ellie ever lived here or ever will. I should be used to this. I should have learned by now not to hope. But every time it's a punch in the gut. The full moon remains high, and I walk back to where I left the way. I step on it without a backward glance, and the buildings around me fade away. I move on. I've travelled a lot. My parents died when I was nine, cutting me off from the roots I might have had, and their trust fund later set me free from the kids' home. 
On my eighteenth birthday, I withdrew a big chunk of cash and took the train to Paris, lingering long enough to get another train to the south, where I spent a month getting tanned before hitchhiking into Italy. That became my life. I didn't stay anywhere long. I didn't get lonely. I liked my own company in the open road. My flat in London was mainly a warehouse. I met plenty of girls, just never one that I couldn't leave behind. Until Ellie. Ellie was different. I first met her in a small coastal town in Cornwall, in a cafe close to the harbour. What was I doing there? What I do everywhere, just passing through. My name's Elysia, she said that first morning, looking at me over the brim of her coffee cup. Siggy, I said. Elysia's a gorgeous name, if you don't mind me saying. Latin? It means blessed home. Well, I've never had one of those. Poor you. There's always hope. This time I step off the way and I know it's a bust immediately. I'm beside a four-lane highway. One roadway is empty, except for large cracks in the asphalt through which trees have thrust themselves. The other roadway is a wall of metal, abandoned and rusty cars, nose to tail. Behind the wheel of the nearest car is a skeleton, dressed in faded scraps of clothing. The sky is clear as cut glass, with the scent of long-dead fires on the breeze. I hike along the line of cars. I see a few people at a distance... Are naturally thin, they run away when they see me. Other than that, I find only streets strewn with rubbish and bones, and looted supermarkets carpeted with broken glass. Something killed most of the people, and it happened quickly. There are thousands of birds. They give me the creeps, in the birds' eyes, when they look at me as a hint of a species memory that I am food, if I would only lie still long enough. There is nothing here for me. If Ellie was here, she's dead or gone, if she's lucky. I move on. That night at the party, my first time on the way, Ellie's hand left my shoulders and she was gone. The ghost path beneath my feet became brighter and the meadow was obscured by a wall of fog. I crept along a tunnel of mist, afraid the path would disappear and dump me back into the dewy field. I counted my steps as Ellie instructed and after only ten paces I stepped off the path. It was as if a light had been switched off. I was in the same coastal meadow but it was empty. No sign of Ellie, nor, when I went looking, was there any sign of the party, where a few minutes ago there had been a marquee and a barbecue pit, there was now empty lawn, and a terrace with garden chairs stacked in a tidy pile. The house was dark and silent, like no one had lived there in months. I returned to the meadow where I had last seen Ellie, a flat expanse of dark grass bisected by the shimmering line of the way, which rippled slightly as if it rested on water. I stepped onto the glowing path and was again englobed in luminescent fog. I walked back, carefully measuring my steps and counting. At ten, I stepped off the path and found Ellie exactly where I had left her. Music and laughter came from the trees behind. Wow, am I glad to see you. Have you forgotten something? Ellie looked down and I followed her gaze. I still held her dolphin necklace in my hand. I gave it back and she clasped it round her neck, then stepped close and kissed me. Her hair smelled of strawberry shampoo. My heart was beating as if I had just run a race. Why is that important? I asked the necklace. So I can be sure it's you. Who else would it be? What did you think? Ellie asked, ignoring my question. Where did you go? I was in the same place, but it was different. No party, no people. It was like I travelled in time and came back. It's weirder than that. The way is like a path to... I don't know, different realities, Ellie said, alternative versions of the world in which other choices were made, different decisions taken. Like in sliding doors, 
I could have ended up in a world where you were Gwyneth Paltrow. Like sliding doors a million times over. Places where we didn't meet or we met at different times. Worlds where your parents didn't meet and you were never even born. I had a million questions, but it was typical of me that the wanderlust spoke first. When can I go again? One time, during my years of searching, I find a rural society, inhabited by a race of short farmers descended from the Mongol invaders, who in this world's distant past conquered Western Europe. There are no railways, airplanes or cars, no machines of any kind. They live a simple life, milking goats, tending their crops. In a small village of grass-roofed huts, they welcome me like a visiting chief. They give me food and a strong liquor that burns in my throat. Late in the evening, the daughter of the village chief is pushed forward to dance for me. Later, I collapse drunkenly into bed in the hut they give me. The chief's daughter slips silently beneath the blankets with me, her naked skin cool against mine. She comes to me every night. If I could stay anywhere, this is the place. I'm so tired, and it would be so easy to live here and let everything else I have seen fade away. But there is no Ellie here, and never will be. At the next full moon I slip away into the night and move on. Ellie lived near the village of Helford, close to Falmouth Bay. I moved into her a tiny cottage a week after the party. Those September weeks remain vivid in my memory. We took walks along the shore, Ellie teaching me the names of trees and flowers I didn't know, which was most of them. At night we made love in Ellie's squeaky bed and lay afterwards with the breeze from her open window cooling the sweat on our tangled bodies. It was perfect. For the first time in my life I would have chosen to stay rather than move on. But the choice was too well disguised. By the time I noticed it, I had already got it wrong. The next full moon came on a rainy night. We packed a small rucksack with a flask and sandwiches and set out for our chosen spot, a wooded hill overlooking the estuary. On the way we stopped at the Golden Hind, Ellie's local pub. Cosy, Ellie said as she sipped her vodka. We should just stay here all evening. You're kidding. I've waited a month for this. Just waiting, were you? I thought you might enjoy being with me. You know I do. I placed my hand on hers. But surely you can see how exciting this is for me. Ah, oh, Siggy, you always want to look over the next hill. As the month had passed and the full moon drew nearer, Ellie had become increasingly withdrawn and thoughtful. You showed me this. Don't you find it exciting? The grass isn't always greener. You could stay with me. I am staying with you. I just want to see more of what's out there. What do you think you'll find that's better? Not better. I just need to see what's there. The landlord in the hind always flirted with Ellie. Rainy night for camping, he said as we left, nodding at the rucksack. You wouldn't catch me camping, Ellie laughed. Just a few provisions. Take care, gorgeous. I felt light-headed as we hiked up the dark hill. Since the previous full moon, I had thought every day of what the next trip on the way might be like. According to Ellie, anything and everything could be found by walking the way, worlds without end. We reached a small copse on the crest of the hill. It was still raining, so we sheltered under an oak tree. Ellie pulled a blanket out of the rucksack and spread it on a dry patch of ground. We drank from the flask as rain dripped from the leaves around us. I put my arm around Ellie's shoulders and she nuzzled her head against my chest. We don't need to do it, Ellie said. We could just stay here and have sex. Come on. You've done it more than me. Let me have another try. There's always next month, she said, and the month after that. 
What's the hurry to get away? I'm not trying to get away. Why don't we go together? Doesn't work that way. You have to go separately. We could go to the same place. We can try, she said. But there's always a risk of going slightly different distances along the way. We'd end up in different worlds. But if we both count our paces, are our paces the same length? The answer to that was obvious, and I didn't bother to speak. Ellie studied my face before she spoke again. Look, if we leave it this month, we could spend some time practicing. When we're sure we can reliably measure out the same distance, we can travel to the same place. I have learned since that night that the way can take me to an almost limitless number of places, but it can't take me back to that moment with Ellie. If it could, I would accept a suggestion. If I had, events would have taken a different course. We can do that, I said. Before adding, like the wandering fool I am, but let me have another try tonight. Then we'll do it your way. Ellie said nothing, but something closed behind her eyes. We stood together again. I kept my eyes open this time. Here, Ellie handed me her dolphin necklace again. I put it in my pocket. The way had appeared. It traced a pale line across the ground, running west, clinging to the edge of the trees. Don't go too far, Ellie said. Remember, walk the exact same distance each time, and come back soon. One time, nothing is different. London looks the same: terrible traffic, same dirty rain, same street markets and overcrowded coffee shops. The same guy is still prime minister, and familiar problems preoccupy the world: a civil war in the Middle East, an earthquake in South America. Is this where I started? Am I home? I stay a full month, and the day before the next full moon, I take the tube and visit the house where I was born. I find it without difficulty, and everything looks as I remember it. I'm about twenty yards away when I see a woman approach the front door. She takes out a key, opens the door, and steps inside. It is my mother, not as I remember her, but as she would have been if she had lived and was now twenty years older. I stand on the pavement, torn between the desire to follow her and the urge to run away. I wonder if my father is in the house. How will they respond when they see their son after all this time? A man and a woman walk towards me. Something familiar about the man makes me uneasy, and I step out of sight behind a tree. The young woman has her arm around his waist, and she laughs at something he says. The man is me. The bark of the tree is rough on my face where I press against it. The young couple walk to the door of my childhood home and press the doorbell. My mother opens the door and hugs her son before kissing the woman. They go inside. I shouldn't be surprised. Why shouldn't there be a place where my parents lived, where my heart wasn't locked in a box when I was nine? It makes sense that there should be such a world. It just isn't mine. The next night, I find the way by climbing the fence into Hyde Park, and move on. That second time, Ellie disappeared again as I stepped onto the way. Once again, I counted steps aloud. Ellie told me not to go too far, but I was curious to see how different things could be. I walked one hundred paces and stepped sideways from the shining path. There's one grabbing. I was seized roughly from behind. I couldn't see my attacker, but another face appeared in front of me—a man in uniform. He held a gun pointed at my chest. Where's the boat? What boat? Ah, you speak English. Where are the others? I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, pal, it won't work. We know there's at least one boat tonight. Show us where you came ashore. I didn't. I, I live near here. He doesn't sound like an illegal. The man holding me from behind spoke for the first time. Maybe he's telling the truth. 
Well, he needs to explain what he's doing here after curfew. Hold him while we check the beach. The man behind me released my arms and gestured with his gun so that I sat against a tree. The man who had questioned me moved away into the dark field, accompanied by other shadowy figures. It's been a mistake, I said when we were alone. If you really do live round here, you know we're getting med refugees practically every night. Parnell doesn't bother with the legal processes. Persuades them back in the boat with a gun. I didn't know it was that bad. Where have you been? It was bad before, but since they bombed Barcelona... I closed my eyes. I needed to get out of this version of Cornwall before the other men returned. If they took me into town for questioning, I was in deep trouble. I breathed slowly, forcing myself to relax. You all right, mate? I hadn't moved far from where I came off the way. I turned my head and barely stifled a cry of joy. The path shone faintly just beyond the tree at my back. Can you see that? I whispered. See what? I'll show you. Let me up for a moment. You better stay there. I, I dropped something back here. I rose to my feet. I can prove who I am. Stay there. I'll get it. I lunged away and onto the glowing path that my guard could not see. He yelled something, but as soon as I touched the way, the sound of his voice was cut off, and I was enclosed once more in the deadening glow of the fog. I had been wrong to insist on making the trip against Ellie's wishes, and I was foolish to go so far along the way on only my second trip. Now came my third and worst mistake of the night. In the panic of my escape, I half ran, half stumbled back the way I had come, until I brought myself to a halt when I realised I was not counting my steps. I guessed that I had done about ten, and I walked more carefully after that. I slowed further when I got past a count of ninety, studying the wall of mist beside me as I paced out the final strides. The fog didn't completely obscure everything. There were patches of light and shade, hints of movement, and even occasional glimpses of what looked like people, faces looming close and then fading away. I stopped at a hundred paces. Was this the place? I, I thought it was the right number of steps, but something felt wrong. The vaporous glow in front of me looked no different to the sections on either side, but I felt a powerful reluctance to step through. Had I miscounted? Had I come too far, taking longer strides when I ran that first stretch after escaping? Should I go back a few steps and leave the path there? I rejected the thought. If I started mucking around like that, I could get hopelessly lost. Stick with the basics. A hundred steps out, a hundred back. I left the way and was relieved to find myself back beneath the oak tree where I left Ellie. The rain had cleared and the grass was dry under a cloudless sky. There was no sign of our picnic, and Ellie was gone. One time I'm on an empty road. It was once a significant highway, four lanes wide, with a concrete divider in the middle. Weeds pushed through cracks in the asphalt. The first thing I notice is the all-embracing silence. The second thing is the cold. Wind-driven snowflakes sting my cheeks. Breathing in, icy air knifes into my sinuses. At first I think it is night, but as my eyes adjust I see a pale disk of sun through the low cloud. Nothing grows except some sparse yellow strands of grass. I find an abandoned car. The doors are open and snow is collected inside. Another car is a few yards further on, and beyond that two lines of cars fill one side of the road as far as I can see, an ugly glacier of dead metal. I open the door of a black BMW that looks in reasonable condition and slip inside to shelter. There is a newspaper on the passenger seat, its pages brittle with age. The front page headline says... P.M. pleads for calm over warfares. Beneath that, Trident subs scramble with U.S. forces on red alert. Last-ditch talks at U.N. I scrape a handful of snow from the windshield and find that it contains fine grains of ash. 
Nothing moves on the road or in the sky. I sit in the car for at least an hour. Then I get out and retrace my steps to the way. And move on. I assumed Ellie had returned home, given a choice between shivering in a dark field while I had fun in another dimension or curling up at home. There was no doubt what she'd choose. I returned down the hill and walked to her cottage. I knocked at the door but received no response. Ellie kept a spare key under the flower pot beside the back door. I slipped round to the back, but I couldn't find either pot or key. Maybe she'd gone back to the pub. She hadn't wanted to leave it in the first place. I half walked, half ran to the golden hind and felt a surge of relief when I turned the last bend and saw the pub windows lit up like a ship afloat on a dark sea. Inside I scanned the bar, but I saw no sign of Ellie. "'What can I get you?' the barman asked. He was no different, at least. Thinning hair combed over his freckled scalp, insincere smile. Has Ellie been back this evening? Beg your pardon? Ellie? I was here with her earlier. Did she come back? Not sure who you mean. Ellie, she lives in the cottage along the Helford Road. We had two drinks. When we left, you joked about us going camping because of the rucksack. I don't think I can help you. He looked at me as if I'd started undressing in public. Don't think I know any Ellie's. Look, she always wears this. Ellie's dolphin necklace was in my hand. The landlord was frowning, and I was conscious that I was starting to sound desperate. You must recognise it. You're always staring at her tits. Look, I don't know what you're on about. Do you want to order a drink, or will you be on your way? I left the pub and returned to the cottage. When repeated banging on the door received no response, I broke a window and let myself in. The cupboards were empty, and the fridge was switched off. In the bedroom it was the same. None of Ellie's clothes or books were there, nor my own few personal possessions. It was as if Ellie had moved out in the short time since we left earlier in the evening. I stood in the empty bedroom, still clutching the dolphin necklace in my hand. I was in a world where Ellie didn't live in this house and wasn't known at the pub. Was I in a world where she even existed? I returned to the wooded hilltop and found the way again. I rejoined it and measured five paces before plunging back into the world. Sometimes it is tempting to stay. A dusty road beneath a hot sun. People walk along it, occasionally making way for wooden carts drawn by horses. I am overtaken by a flatbed truck pulled by two ponies. The driver gestures to the bench beside him. I climb up, throwing my pack onto the bales of hay behind. The driver says something. I can't understand him. I'm sorry, I'm a stranger here. Hugo Samaria? He speaks English, but it sounds half Latin. I have to concentrate on his lips to follow the words. We descend a gentle hill towards a river. Shortly before my hay farmer friend drops me off, we pass a sign that reveals that this town is called Santa Maria. I do what I always do. Find lodgings in a poor part of town, exchange some gold for local money, spend time in public places listening and watching. I discover that the town is named after Queen Mary, the Catholic monarch known in my England as Bloody Mary for her ruthless persecution of Protestants. In my history she ruled for a few years before her death ushered in the reign of her sister Elizabeth. Here she lived much longer, while Elizabeth was exiled. There was never any defeat of the Spanish Armada because Mary welcomed the invading army of her husband, Philip of Spain. England has enjoyed centuries of peace under the distant rule of Spain. The price is the suppression of science which threatens the Church, Hence the lack of motor vehicles, which at least makes for clean air. People are friendly, accepting without question my odd appearance and outsider accent. I'm tempted to stay. 
But there is no Ellie, and my years of wandering have taught me that I will only stop when I am back with her. Furthermore, the main square of Santa Maria has a gallows and a tall pole surrounded by kindling, ready for burning. Some of Bloody Mary's practices survive. I move on. I was haunted by the night I lost Ellie. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Did she wait beneath the tree for me to return, thinking I didn't care enough to come back? Did she try to find me, as time passed and my attempts to find her only took me further away? I tried to bury her memory. But I couldn't. I had always been a wanderer, and now I had limitless worlds to explore. But this treasure had been given to me at the precise moment I finally found someone for whom I was prepared to stay. She shouldn't have affected me so strongly. I had only a couple of months with Ellie, but I couldn't shake her memory. The night at the party, with moonlight on her face, the kiss beneath the trees, walking hand in hand on the beach, the way her face creased when she laughed as we shared a drink in the hind. I couldn't get her out of my head, however many wonders I saw in the worlds I visited. I moved on, always looking for the next thing, but in truth searching for a sign of Ellie. Without her there was nothing to tie me to any specific reality, and I passed through them all like a ghost weaving through a grand parade. I'm sure I've been here before. I detect no difference from the world I started in. I'm so tired I could sleep the whole month until the next moon calls me away. I travel to London and find my flat. The spare key is hidden where I always leave it. Is this, in fact, my own world after all this time and all these failures? If I travel to Cornwall, will I find Ellie's cottage and Ellie waiting for me? I let myself in, drop my bag on the floor and walk into the kitchen. Everything is how I left it, however long ago it was when I was last here. There's a bottle of whiskey beside the sink. I pour a glass and walk into the lounge. This is strange, a man says from the armchair, but I guessed it was you. He is instantly familiar, wearing a shirt I remember buying years ago in France. He's the same age as me, of course, but he looks less tired, and there's something more relaxed in his face than I ever see in a mirror. I'm sorry, I didn't know. It's okay. Sit down. You can stay as long as you like, of course. Not forever, he means. This is his world, not mine. We can't both live in it. This is the world I started in, he says. I know you're wondering. Not yours, he means. How did you find my way back? Maybe I didn't get as lost as you. I want to ask him about Ellie. Is she here with him or somewhere near? He reads it in my face. It's a fantastic gift, isn't it? The way. Everything is there. Universes of possibility. But would you swap it all to get back to Ellie? Wasn't that the best time? I say nothing. My eyes are hot and I would cry if I had any tears left. You can still find her, but not here. We finish the bottle of whiskey and I stay the night, but I leave early in the morning, before he wakes up. Years passed, but at last I stepped off the way and everything was precisely as it was the night I lost Ellie. Moonlight silvered the wet field and laid my shadow in front of me as a guide. I fought against hope, my breath clenched in my chest like a fist. A buzz of early evening conversation came from the windows of the hind as I passed. The lights were on in Ellie's cottage. I could feel the pulse in my ears as I opened the door and walked in. "'I'm in here,' Ellie's voice came from the back of the house. "'Tea's made.' She sat with her feet curled beneath her, a quilt across her lap and a sewing needle in her hand. A teapot and two cups sat on the small table nearby. 
Wow. She looked at me in the doorway, her head on one side. You look like one weary traveller. You'd better sit down. Please let this not be a dream. I stepped forward and Ellie stood up, setting aside her sewing. I hugged her. Hey, not so tight. Don't break me. I had to check you were real, that it's really you. I couldn't take it in, the smell of her hair against my face, the feel of her arms around my waist, the sound of her voice. My head felt tight, with tears hanging heavy behind my eyes. Ellie sat down again. She patted the sofa beside her, and I sat too. She poured tea. You look like you have a lot to tell me. She was calmer about this than I would have expected. Tell me what happened, from the beginning. I told her about the night I lost her. The men taking me prisoner, my escape and hasty return, how I must have lost track and failed to find the same place on the way. How once you're lost, you just get more lost. That was a long time ago, Ellie said, her eyes misty with memory. I remember trying to persuade you to stay. Did you regret going? Only every day since. Poor you. Tell me more. I told her about my travels, my lonely years on the way, searching for her. Ellie said little. I had been gone for years, and she must have given up on me long ago. How could she calmly pour tea and listen to my traveller's tales as if nothing unusual had happened? What about you? I said at last. I can't believe this after all this time. How have you been? Fine. There was something about the way she looked, something important, but I couldn't identify it. It's rotten luck that you have to go through this. I don't know what to say. You don't need to say anything. It's over now. I'm back. Before Ellie could speak, footsteps on the path outside distracted her. She turned her head to the window, and the slight movement drew my attention to something I should have noticed before. The silver chain beneath her chin. Whatever was on the chain was hidden under her blouse, but I didn't need to see it. I reached into my pocket and brought out the dolphin pendant I had carried for years. I'm sorry, Ellie said. The street door opened, and a man's voice called from the front of the house, I'm home. We're in here, Ellie called back. Bring another cup. She looked at the pendant, which I held in front of me like a shield to fend off the reality I couldn't bear to face. I'm so sorry, Ellie said again. She pulled her necklace out from her blouse, revealing the same dolphin pendant. That one's not mine. Hello, a visitor. Oh, it's you. The man in the doorway was, of course, me. Identical except for appearing to have many thousand fewer miles on the clock. What's the story this time? Remember that night we argued at the Hind, Ellie said, when you persuaded me not to go wandering, to enjoy another month of your charms? That's the one. I guess you stayed, I said. I guess you didn't. They insisted I stay for dinner and sleep on the sofa. I did my best to be good company, entertaining them with stories from my years on the way. I kept it light and amusing, as if my life since I lost Ellie had been the endless vacation it would once have been if I'd never met her, rather than the wretched desert it was in the life where I had loved her and let her slip away. I was a starving seafarer who at last spies land only to find it's a fog bank that melts away on the rising sun. Every time Ellie spoke to this happier version of me, touched his arm, rested her head on his shoulder later in the evening as she grew tired, a needle of ice pricked my heart. It was the cruelest thing. I had lost her once and wasted years searching. Just when I was almost over it, I had found her and lost her all over again. 
worst I could see precisely what I had lost in the tenderness that glowed between Ellie and this other version of me. Would I ever get closer than this? Or did I have nothing to look forward to except a million versions of worlds where Ellie and I could not be together, while the one world where we could be together was the one I had started from and allowed to slip through my fingers? Stay as long as you need to, Ellie whispered as she kissed me on the cheek before bed. You're very kind. But there were ashes in my mouth and an iron cage around my heart, and I rose before dawn and slipped away like a thief. The next night the moon was full, and I found the way without difficulty, and moved on. And there you go. Big thank you to Chris and Andrew. Oh, gentlemen, it is an honour. Thank you so much. Chris, that is a cracking story. Thank you. And Andrew, just get drifted away with that voice, lad. Thank you so much indeed, gentlemen. So that is show 600. Yes, man. Now, we wouldn't have... Yes, it's time. We wouldn't have gotten the 600 if it wasn't for your support. So please think about it. We haven't had a single person come over and support Perion for... I reckon it's about three weeks there now. So, you know, it's... <laughs> help out, yeah? Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm
I'll get out there. 